This week, terrified Americans nervously turned on their televisions to tune in to the daily coronavirus press briefing and were startled to hear the President of the United States say this. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nah, <laughs> just pulling your leg. Terrified Americans heard this. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that has him in check, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. But. You know, to compare Franklin Roosevelt to Donald Trump really is an apples to oranges situation. It's, well, not like orange per se, more like, I, what color would you guys say he is? More like a, is that like burnt sienna? <sighs> anyway, here to open this week's show with an original tune is Mike Maimoni. Dig it.
That was Mike Maimoni, lead singer of Mutz, a longtime Machete favorite band from the before times. We're very grateful that he recorded some new tunes for us this week for the Now Times. Here we are in the Now Times. It's the Machete Audio Magazine, April 25th, 2020. I'm Christopher Pyatt. And on this week's episode, we'll stitch together a patchwork of relevant content from a Dada splatter pattern of chaotic current events. Despite not currently having a fresh live Green Mill show to call our own this week, we'll still tackle NFL Draft Week. We'll draft a comedian who's also a military veteran to brief us on displays of military might. We'll make educated guesses about the actual state of Kim Jong-un's health. We'll give you this day your daily quarantined sourdough and just make regular fun of Joe Biden. Speaking of, in recent weeks, a lot of concerned folks are asking, where is Joe Biden? Even when he is on the screen talking, people are asking, where is Joe Biden? It's kind of like he's translucent now. So one year ago this week, Joe Biden was actually at the green mill in the paper machete. This is from our archives. We unearthed a bit from one year ago this week, and it might be one of the single most prescient oracular bits of comedy we've yet to accidentally come across in the machete mothballs. Now, on one hand, this piece is from a much simpler Joe Biden timeline and human timeline. On the other hand, as you'll hear, this seems to presage the future on so many levels that I kind of need to go lie down now. From April 27th, 2019, at the Green Mill, here is one-time Democratic presidential long shot and current Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. Scranton, my old neighborhood, that when the weasel's in the hen house, the fox misses the company of chickens. So, did you all see me on The View? Huh? Did you enjoy yourselves? I tell you, the, the, the cameras were swooping and the music was thumping and those beautiful middle-aged women had rascally questions one of them wore glasses and Megan McCain. She looked like $10 million. She literally looked like a sack of unearned money covered in hair. And I was, <laughs> I was overjoyed to be there. I really was. And, 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 and we laughed and, and we cried and, and something about Anita Hill. And we spent the last third of the show with tears in our eyes talking about dead relatives. And that's democracy. That's empathy. So I feel like the contest is pretty much in the bag. Uh, I mean, we can have the election to keep up appearances. I don't mind, but you understand how it is. But come on. I mean, we're in the battle for the soul of this nation. Everybody who's anybody knows that. I mean, Lord almighty, who else are you going to vote for? <laughs> 
who else is going to scoop this country up in his arms and, and compliment the subtle parlance of the perfume it's wearing? When, when Kamala Harris threw parents into jail for truancy, did, did she hug those kids? No, I did. I walked into her courtroom and I held them. And the bailiff came up to me afterwards to pry us apart and said, no one's ever done that before. Thank you. And I said, you're welcome. I'm Joe Biden. And he couldn't believe it. And when Buddha did, when, when the Buddha, the Buddha man, the, when the Buddha uh, butters, when Boo, when, when, when Boo Radley rescued Scout from Bob Ewell, did he buy her a fancy new dress and give her an internship? No, I did. I rewrote the ending to every copy of that book that I could find and slipped him into the Scranton library down by the birdseed factory. Oh, heck, you know the one. And when, I, when my son, Bo, died, and I buried him over the pet cemetery, and he came back as Beto, I, I was horrified. I can't vote for that. I should have listened to Judd. The ground was sour. Sometimes dead is Beto. What are you gonna get from Barney Sanders? From Elizabeth Warren? Policies? Systematic change? Ah, oh, heck, if people cared about that, they wouldn't tune in to watch me on The View. Hey, did you see me on The View? Did you enjoy yourselves? Wardrobe by Bloomingdale's special guest sponsor, Adam and Eve. And I'm the one. I'm the, the one who's gonna I know people. <laughs> Regular people. I mean, when's the last time you, you specifically stopped and talked to one of those guys way up in the, in, the, in the bucket, you know, hooking up the generators to the poles? When's the last time you said, hey, uh, you're, you're in a bucket and I like you? When's, when's the last time you looked up and thanked the guy in, in, in the bucket on top of the mast of a ship? Thanked him for keeping an eye out for whales, and whales are something I know about. When's the last time you slapped a bedpan or, or, or bed bucket out of a nurse's hands to tell her that she makes our country's urine strong? Somewhere along the line, we, we, we lost our way. We stopped aimlessly wandering the streets and into buildings, making small talk with busy people who wear uniforms. And now everyone's poor and racist. Listen, you're gonna hear some crazy, goofy talk over the next year or so about, uh, I don't know, how I deregulated the financial industry and led the charged for mass incarceration, voted for the Iraq war. I worked with 
Credit card companies to keep students from declaring bankruptcy, plagiarizing speeches, made common cause with well, segregationists under the <laughs> guise of stopping drugs and crime act as a soft barrier to protect my colleagues from allegations of sexual abuse, uh, supported the expansion of drone strikes. It's a no-brainer. Helped create the Patriot Act, uh, pushed arms sales in Ukraine while my son was coincidentally on the board of a Ukrainian gas company. Funny story. And then <laughs> got the Ukrainian process who was leading a corruption probe into him fired. You know, dumb stuff like that. But let me tell you something. When they're putting down Uncle Joe, they're putting down our values. So this is what you do. You stand up tall, put a glazed expression on your face, and yell, well, what about the lack of decency? And honor! Integrity! I'm tired of the division. The fangs of racism. The bulging eyes of hate. The breath of rudeness. I'm tired of it. I work in a bucket. <laughs> Joe's a good man. His wife died. His son died. Came back to life as a monster. So help me. When I get to the office, to the uh, big white uh, oval, I'm going to bring everyone together. I'm going to stretch out my arms and glide through the nation and I'm going to gesture and graze a boob and half apologize 20 years later. And I'm going to generally talk about cancer. Now it's bad. Now racism is bad. And in eight years time, two terms, God willing, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, your, your children are going to be amazed at how we can travel the world in a sky bucket in half an hour. <laughs> And, and also something about the climate. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's everything, I think. I'm gonna go change the toilet paper in the ladies' room because I'm tired of ladies having no toilet, toilet paper. I'm tired of it. God bless. Joe Biden was created and played for the paper machete by the brilliant Chris... Hauser. So if social media is any indicator, a lot of people are currently roughing it in their homes right now by taking on 19th century pioneer tasks, like some Laura Ingalls Wilder novel, which made us wonder what would the Little House on the Prairie author make of our current plight? The next voice you're about to hear belongs to Tessa Orzek. Little House on the Prairie is one of the most beloved children's book series of all time, having sold nearly 60 million copies worldwide. The series chronicles the life of little heroine Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family, American pioneers attempting to settle on the Great Plains in the 1870s. The Ingalls family were hardworking homesteaders who lived off the land and built their lives from the ground up each time they arrived on a new frontier in their covered wagon. The Little House series has long been regarded as a memoir, an understandable assumption when the main character and author have the same name. Wilder publicly insisted that her books were accurate depictions of pioneer life, but research in recent decades reveals that her stories were romanticized to make them more appropriate for children. A 2007 biography of Wilder divulges several sordid moments that were left out of the story, including scenes of divorce, illegitimate pregnancy, revenge, and manslaughter. 
In one scene, a drunk man attempts to light a cigar after taking a shot of whiskey and accidentally inhales the flame, lighting his lungs on fire and killing himself. If there were a TV show based on the real story, it would have to be a Ryan Murphy joint. Of course, Little House on the Prairie did go on to become a successful TV show in the 70s and 80s, but the vibe was more seventh heaven than American Horror Story. Fans of the television show do seem to agree on one thing that was done right, the casting of Michael Landon to play Laura's beloved father. With his strong jaw, prairie tan, and full flop of dark hair, the man wearing those suspenders may have been called Pa, but he looked a lot more like Daddy. Pa was often out hunting with his rifle and traps. But what about those delts, or lats? One thing is certain, Ma was a lucky woman. While the television show was long-running and beloved in its own right, the book series is the rightful reason Little House on the Prairie has earned its place in history. When young readers fell in love with the idyllic scenes portrayed in the series, they cherished the imagery of baking bread, churning butter, and sewing petticoats. Little house heads wanted to wear long aprons and sweep dirt floors. They wanted to drizzle maple syrup over fresh snow until it hardened into homemade candy. They wanted to don a bonnet and venture across the Great Plains in a covered wagon. Although everything in the Little House universe was a literal chore, it was still enchanting. Some readers may even have found themselves longing for the opportunity to stockpile supplies for the long winter, which refers to the sixth book in the series and tells the story of the winter of 1880 in Desmet, Iowa. Laura and her family lived through seven months of nonstop blizzards, one of the worst winters ever recorded, while food and fuel ran dangerously low. Today's world under quarantine is a lot like the long winter. Now, even if you've never felt the urge to put piping hot baked potatoes in your pockets to use as hand warmers, you're currently living in a version of Laura's world. Supplies must be stocked, food must be made, and everyone must stay home until it's safe to go out into the world again. When government-mandated stay-at-home orders are issued, everyone finds themselves with more free time than usual, with some showcasing the Wilder-esque pastimes that they use to pass time. Baking bread from scratch has become so popular that the nation's yeast supply chain simply cannot catch up, as yeast sales have risen 600% since last year. But this type of common baker, the one who uses dry, active yeast when they can get their hands on it, are nowhere near as hardcore as the sourdough bros. The sourdough bro was born in Silicon Valley as standard tech bros leveled up their leisure activities with the help of homegrown wild yeast. These homemade sourdough starters require a painstaking amount of effort nurturing and monitoring, with one loaf of sourdough taking up to 40 hours to produce. While early sourdough bros began their starters as a way to spend more time offline, the sourdough community now documents their crusty creations on social media using hashtag crumbshot to file photos of their best work. A quick perusal of the hashtag will uncover complicated captions dictating flour ratios, hydration levels, leavening instructions, and mixing methods, alongside recommendations for bougie at-home grain mills, laser thermometers, and bread ovens. But those with any baking experience know that there are many four-ingredient, no-need, no-fuss bread recipes available. So why did these fermentation-obsessed fuckboys feel the need to convolute something so simple, pure, and good? After all, bread is the original sustenance. It's the body of Christ. It's the only thing those pioneers ate for months during that long winter. At first, sourdough bros saw an opportunity to apply their mathematical, systems-obsessed brains to something that felt wholesome and hands-on. But as the community of men grew, competition was kneaded into the process. That slight bite you detect on your tongue as you crunch through a slice of their sourdough, that's toxic masculinity you taste. Sourdough was chosen by these men because there is a level of unpredictability with wild yeast that makes engineering the right process a game to be won. And if someone is winning, then someone else is losing. 
but bread is meant to nourish the body, not bolster the ego. The bread bros can treat each loaf like a tough mutter competition if they want, but there is no soul in that bread bowl. If Laura Ingalls Wilder were alive to see a man baking bread, she might be thrilled to finally have a day off. But once she realized that it would take him 40 hours to make one loaf of bread, she would be furious. In 40 hours, she would have baked the bread, milked the cow, churned the butter, made cheese from the head of a pig, smoked the meat, pickled the vegetables, swept the floors, stuffed the bed, and done the washing and the ironing. Laura was part of the original work from home generation and she didn't get to do her work in jeans and a quarter zip pullover. While she did rewrite some of her own experiences to make them more palatable for children, her chores and daily activities were honestly depicted in vivid, pristine detail. But even with plenty of extra free time during quarantine, it's much more satisfying to read about her life than attempt to relive it. That was Tessa Orzek, host and producer of one of my favorite Chicago comedy series, Camp, which if we ever get the hell out of here, I can't wait to go back to. So is NFL Draft Week? Even in these times, these crazy-ass virus times, there are still several college ballplayers whose lives changed forever this week. So the Machete's regular sports correspondent is a Southern Belle and a sorority sister and a sports broadcasting major from the University of Tennessee. So we obviously didn't record this live set this week, but it still feels fresh as a rose. Here's Paper Machete senior undergraduate sports correspondent, Mary Erin Andrews. Hey, y'all. Mary Erin Andrews here. Some of you may know me as the Paper Machete sports expert, and some of you may be thinking, yeah, that's because none of us give a fuck about sports. Uh, But I'm here, nonetheless. Why would I fly all the way from Knoxville to Midway just to see you fine folks? Well, because it's so fun to see white women who didn't vote for Trump. It's a thrill. (laughs) I am a senior this year. It wouldn't be an update for me if I didn't give you a little personal news. So I've already accepted a position at KRST in Gatlinburg to be their afternoon traffic reporter. Okay, so honestly, (sighs) the town really only has 4,000 people, so they don't need a traffic reporter, but the programming director owes $10,000 to my uncle in unpaid poker debt, so I got a job! Okay. (laughs) It's a very exciting time in sports. The NFL playoffs are in their second week, and that's so fun because if you didn't die of a brain aneurysm during the regular season, you get another shot. And this past Monday, the college football season came to an electrifying finish as the Alabama Crimson Tide defeated the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, as a girl born and raised in Tennessee, watching Alabama and Georgia play is like watching ISIS and Al-Qaeda fight. (laughs) You just hope for a lot of casualties. Now, y'all, college football is really fun, and I'm not just saying that because I made out with the punter last semester. Uh, His name's Bryson. He has a girlfriend now. But 
You are getting to watch young men's dreams come true while their names, likenesses, and bodies are being exploited for a billion-dollar industry while being provided zero compensation. <laughs> now, I don't know about y'all, but where I come from, if someone asked you to work without getting paid, that's called community service. <laughs> And you do it when you got a DUI on a forklift. <laughs> I think it is flat out wrong to be asking these boys to give up their bodies in exchange for a free education. You know how much a college degree is worth right now? Negative $200,000. <laughs> This brings me all the way to the main reason I came here to see y'all. And I am disgracing my family, my neighbors, Pastor Mike to even say this, but I think college football is racist. I said it. Yeah, it's racist, y'all. And I don't mean like H&M racist, like racist racist. It's weird. It's black men, and yes, you'll say, of course, there's white boys playing, but they're not any good, let's be honest. <laughs> when I see a running back whose name is Kevin, I'm like, bless his heart. <laughs> so we're talking, we're talking about asking black men to work for free so old white men can profit. Uh-oh. I've heard this before. <laughs> Even the coaches' names are racist. Jimbo Fisher? Jimbo Fisher, that's his name. He made $6 million last year, and his name is Jimbo. Jimbo is such a goddamn silly name, my computer kept auto-correcting it to Jumbo. Yes, like a pretzel. Who else is, oh, okay, Butch Jones. Butch Jones, that's your name that you're just gonna walk around town with? Butch Jones sounds like a man that would hold up a bank with a hot dog. Butch Jones sounds like Doug Jones' racist cousin that the Democrats put in a cabin somewhere deep in the woods. Like, nobody talked to him. Oh, and the worst name of all. Dabo Sweeney. Dabo? Dabo Sweeney. Do you know the confidence it takes to walk into someone's house and say, Hi, I'm Dabo. Can I have your black son? No! So there's clearly a problem. So what do we do? This is part of my New Year's resolutions. I don't just want to complain. I want to give some solutions, too. I think, first, we got to pay these boys. And if you tell anyone I said this, I will fly back up here. I will throw you in that goddamn freezing lake with a Portillo sandwich tied to your foot so you sink like a fucking cinder block. But we got to pay them at least a portion of jersey sales. I mean, if your name is stitched on the back of a piece of clothing, I think you deserve for money from that. Second. Oh, thank you. I'm pandering a bit, but okay. Uh, second, if you have a racist name and you want to coach a team, you got to change it, honey. I'm sorry. If your name sounds like it was to kill Mockingbird, you got to get a new one. 
football coach should be a Michael, a John, or a Joseph. And obviously, are these names racist too? Of course, but at least they're hiding it. Thank you so much. Mary Erin Andrews was created and played for the Machete for many years by the wonderful Megan Gailey. And it's my turn. It's my turn at the mic now. It's my turn at the virtual podium, the digital lectern, the audio pulpit. It's a pulpit. Let's face it, it's a pulpit when I'm standing at it. It feels like a pulpit. Know thyself, right? Anyway, speaking of highfalutin pontificators, here are a few thoughts on presidential public addresses. On the cold March morning in 1933, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sworn in as its 32nd president, America had a cash flow problem. For nearly a month, many of America's banks had been closed due to bank runs. Abject panic gripped the entire country. On March 6th, literally three days into his presidency, FDR ordered a nationwide bank holiday, a total shutdown of the system. Every bank in the country was closed. On March 12th, America's one week and one day old newest president addressed his terrified constituency via the radio. Even in dirt poor, dusty bowl, Great Depression America, about 90% of the nation's homes had radios. His speech, 1,228 words and just over 13 minutes in length, explained the banking holiday in carefully measured, beaded cadences and dulcet tones, an accessible language. This first direct address to the nation was a landmark not just for Roosevelt's presidency, but for the presidency, our American presidency, yours and mine. The nation's banks reopened the next day, and deposits exceeded withdrawals. The banking crisis was essentially averted. Historians inevitably note FDR's seemingly incorruptible aura of serenity that telegraphed subliminal signal waves of calm, an unflappable, even delusional optimism with particles of contagion that somehow infected an otherwise hopeless and destitute citizenry. This spiritually buoyant worldview of his, what Mark Twain would have called the confidence of a Christian with four aces, could have only come from the coddled, swaddled luxury's lap in which he was raised, and the unconditional love showered on him throughout his aristocratic childhood and private schooling. And it likely couldn't have been cracked open and shared with the rest of his fellow citizens, who were mostly low-born and beggared, below-average Joes and Great Plain Janes, if it weren't for the polio that hobbled him, literally and figuratively. Though it was his lifelong albatross, his paralysis had a leveling effect. It pulled him from his 1% pedestal and somehow spilled this wellspring of happy-go-lucky trust fund hope into the hard-scrabble American streets like a busted fire hydrant on a scorching summer ghetto day for the children to frolic in. FDR's reassuring bank holiday speech, given on only the eighth day of his 12 years as president, set up a template 
for the occasional radio addresses, which of course came to be known iconically as fireside chats. While it was certainly a stroke of lucky timing that the rise of the relatively new, widespread, affordable radio technology coincided with his tenure in office, it was no fluke that he took the craft of public address with grave seriousness. His patrician breeding and elite school schooling were somehow no barriers between FDR, the East Coast blue blood, and the rest of the country. 80% of the words used in fireside chats were among the 1,000 most commonly used words in the English language. His secretary, Grace Tully, said the process began with her transcriptions of the president's lofty ruminations. He would tell her, quote, I'll just think out loud. She'd then turn the notes over to his speechwriters, what Franklin called something for the boys to put their teeth into. Once condensed into lean, muscular, folksy prose, Roosevelt would then deliver his speeches not just into a microphone on live air, but to friends, colleagues, and loved ones sitting right in front of him so he could create an intimate air of conversation in his delivery with heightened gestures and facial expressions that he hoped would come across to listeners. And the listeners were basically the entire country. The writer Saul Bellow famously described walking down a Chicago street on a warm summer night and not missing a single word of a Roosevelt speech. Every window was up, every corridor was open, and each had a radio tuned into the president. Meanwhile, these audio olive branches communicating New Deal policies to the public were further buttressed by a new practice of media communication, the White House press briefings. This was a new thing. This was new. Once a week, FDR met privately with reporters and fielded their questions directly. Now, this was for background information only, no direct quotes, and a gentleman's agreement of no funny business. But Homie had a knack for holding court with journalists. In college, he had been the president of the school paper, the Harvard Crimson. Frank could remember their names and call on them accordingly, which probably seemed like a magic parlor trick at the time, since all previous administrations had only ever responded to journalists' submitted written questions. And FDR's Republican predecessor, Herbert Hoover, famously said, quote, the president of the United States will not stand and be questioned like a chicken thief by men whose names he does not even know. In FDR's 12 years as president, he only gave 30 fireside chats, only about two or three times per year. For comparison's sake, President Trump has addressed the press and the nation simultaneously, directly on live television, every single day for the last 30 days. And every day before that, starting on March 14th. And whereas FDR started each radio speech process with a secretary transcribing his ideas, the notes of which were then transmuted by a team of expert and diligent wordsmiths into dynamic, quotable populist rhetoric, President Trump's podium style is more like okay have you ever are you familiar with free jazz do you know what free jazz the genre free jazz okay have you ever been to 
the green mill at like 4.15 a.m. on a Sunday. And you just smoked weed in the alley and you go inside the bar. And that's when you suddenly realize how bad that weed you just smoked is with those guys you just met in the alley. That, and the music is... And I personally love this kind of music. And the musicians I'm describing right now, they're my actual friends in life. But you, in this analogy, you've never been in a room with any live jazz before ever. Certainly not esoteric, experimental, atonal, organic, like free jazz. And also you're actually a tourist visiting from Indiana, having a stag weekend. You're Mike Pence. You're, you're literally Vice President Mike Pence. And those dudes you met in the alley, their pot was laced with fentanyl. And now you're in this room and there's this music and it sounds like Satan singing karaoke in space to you. That's what it sounds like to me when the president is talking at the podium. Free jazz. Anyway. So the news out of North Korea about Kim Jong-un's failing health is... If we did CNN-style puns on this show, we would say that Kim Jong-un's health is unclear. It's unverified. We, we, don't, we don't know what the actual news is out of North Korea. Which reminded us of the summit that happened last year between the then-healthy North Korean leader and our own President Trump. Just for old time's sake, we take you now to that press briefing. Let's listen in. of North Korea. I'm here to correct your President Trump's version of the Vietnam summit and give North Korea's account of what really happened. First of all, when the Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un entered the conference room at the Metropole Hotel, he was looking good. Really good. Like a very tasty snack. We're talking ripped AF. And an extremely visible jawline. Very square face, with no roundness at all. The Supreme Leader then proceeded to shake hands with President Trump, except the President's full palm was only able to grasp 
the Supreme Leader's pinky finger. In the manner of a small child or baby. The president then began the meeting by saying, I guarantee that we are going to make a deal. All my deal-making skills are pointing to yes, there will be a deal. The president then said, you've got to disclose information about your nukes and nuclear tests. And the Supreme Leader said, well, sometimes nuclear tests go so badly that you never want anyone to see your test results. <laughs> because they would be so embarrassing to the entire world. So much so that you call whoever has your nuclear test results and threaten legal action if they are ever released. To which the president said, that's very reasonable. The president continued, by the way, Otto Warmbier, to which the Supreme Leader replied, honestly, we've killed a lot of people. It's tough to keep track. And the president interjected, I'm gonna stop you right there, not your fault. And the Supreme Leader replied, oh no, I've definitely killed people. Like a lot. And the president said, but you didn't know about it. I'm the same. There's tons I don't know about and never will. I mean, you should see our border camps. They make your prisons look like Mar-a-Lago. At which point they both laughed. And the Supreme Leader said, oh man, you are crazy. At this point, the president wandered off to watch TV in his room but we remain hopeful for a deal. Because your president and the Supreme Leader have so much in common. Sick ass haircuts. <laughs> They're both universally adored by their people. <laughs> and were in no way disappointments to their fathers. North Korea's press secretary was played for the paper machete by the one and only Avery Lee. So with all the talk of possibly ingesting Lysol and treating a deadly virus with ultraviolet light, it kind of got buried this week that President Trump has ordered the Navy's Blue Angels to fly over our cities in a tribute to healthcare workers, which kind of seems kind of wasteful when the post office is on the chopping block. But just as Trump admits that he is not a doctor, I will concede that I am not an accountant. And to be fair, even the Trump Hotels and Oval Office Syndicate, 
wasn't the only political party pushing for this kind of patriotic fanfare this week. Even Democratic New York Mayor Bill de Blasio this week announced that New York is still planning on a 4th of July ticker tape parade in honor of healthcare workers. So save your tape. This reminded us of an essay from last summer. This came on the heels of President Trump's big 4th of July military parade, which was reminiscent of dictatorships and his subsequent speech about American history that was reminiscent of alcoholic dementia. Anyway, it seemed like a really good time to revisit this set by John McCombs. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, so Thursday, uh, President Trump delivered a speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial as a salute to America and the troops, featuring flyovers, static displays, and a fireworks display put on by a divorced Logan Square father. Um, <laughs> just got back from Indiana, guys. He's got $300 to burn, okay? <laughs> but, uh, you know, many people criticize the haphazard manner in which the speech was planned out, leaving aides to scramble to hand out tickets and fears the speech would be overly militaristic and divisive, but this is America, man. Planning things out is for communists and vegans, okay? <laughs> exactly. And I have mixed emotions, because I'm a veteran of the United States Marine Corps myself, um, but, all right, right. Thank you for assuming I was good at it. Uh, <laughs> I barely passed some drug tests, guys. I, you know, it's just... <laughs> no, but it, it, I have mixed feelings about this whole thing because I, I mean, I, I, obviously, I was a veteran in the military, but I also believe Trump is just dumb, Mr. Burns. Okay, so, and, I, and look, I know the the right likes to prop up our military as a classic conservative example of a well-functioning organization where everyone is judged based on their abilities. People are not discriminated against based on religion, skin color, sexual orientation. All members have access to dental, dental care and health care, including mental health services. Uh, there's a fair distribution of wealth from top to bottom. Annual raises are included to keep up with inflation. Members have access to free education. I mean, what, why can't the, the socialists left learn from the military, okay? <sighs> Man. Military is just socialism with guns, okay, guys? That's... That's really what it is. That's how we need to sell the Green New Deal. It's just the best public transit with guns, yeah. <laughs> what annoys me about this whole thing really is like the hero worship and shallowness of support the troops message. Like not really, not a lot of people understand what the military does. Like some people think military service is like playing Call of Duty. You know, not everyone is a Navy SEAL. Some people just deliver the mail. <laughs> I've had drinks bought for me by grizzled old men who would be pissed to find out I just controlled our unit's Facebook on deployment. Like, <laughs> Here's the thing, I have met some dumb Marines, okay? I met a Marine who believes he met a werewolf. <laughs> and you know what we did? We gave that guy the biggest machine gun we have. Like, <laughs> we're like, here, dumb dumb, you can't break this, go ahead. So this event worried a lot of people, you know, because it's more in line with like a militaristic display you'd see from a dictator or an autocratic in autocratic countries, which feeds into my assessment that, you know, Trump is crushing it as an African dictator. Okay, guys, he's 
doing so well. Like, could you see him coming out in like that last King of Scotland get up, you know, like lion skin over his shoulder, a bunch of medals from wars he got deferments from, you know? It's, <laughs> it's like we need to build a wall around Wakanda. It's, the Tutsis are terrible people. Like, <laughs> Anyways. If you actually listen to this speech, I tried to. I got through a little bit of it, but it's honestly like watching a dance recital for a kid you don't care about. It's... <sighs> God. <laughs> but I did watch a little bit of it, and, um, you know, dumb Mr. Burns, he fucking butchered our military history. He's talking about the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. He's quoted as saying, our army manned the air. Whatever the fuck that means. It rammed the ramparts. Now he's just guessing. <laughs> Those are just context clues there. It took over airports. I, I think he just saw a plane and got distracted. I'll be honest, guys. That or this is going to be the best episode of Drunk History ever. I mean... <laughs> I want to see that episode, man. Just... And he said, uh, and at Fort McHenry, under the rocket's red glare, had nothing but victory. That's from a different war. Okay? And I'll give him credit. I, you know, I realize it's hard to keep track of all the wars we fight, all right? Honestly, it is a true fact. Since 1776, we have had 19 years of peace in our history. Yes, 19 years in the United States history, we have been at peace. The rest have we have been at in some kind of conflict or war. Look... If you want to support the troops, do something of actual value to them. You know, volunteer at a VA hospital, donate to the wounded warriors, or do what I do. I find an email address of a young man or woman deployed overseas, and I send them the password to a Brazzers subscription. <laughs> yes! Man or woman, if, it makes, if there's one thing that makes the deployment go by faster, it is frequent and aggressive masturbation, okay? <laughs> Sometimes it's necessary for survival. I've been on watch and had to beat my dick to stay awake. Like, somebody comes by, I'm like, I'm keeping my buddy safe. Like, <laughs> but I do want to end on a serious note here. Um, the military civilian gap is the largest it's ever been. Um, right now, less than 1% of the pop our population serves in the military. And that has caused a vast disconnect between civilians and the military on both liberal and conservative sides. Uh, many conservatives view us as this like kick ass and take names organization, you know, honorable, ready to fight and die, you know, spit and shine posters of an infallible hero in a movie. And many liberals look at us as an organization of misfits who are unfortunately had no other options, victims of a military industrial complex designed to maximize profit, the lives and sanities of young men and women, foolish enough to volunteer for it. Um, these are both false, with elements of truth. Um, I have a lot of pride in the United States Armed Forces. Uh, it's a microcosm of what I believe we aspire to be. Uh, and in many ways, the military is ahead of where society is right now. Uh, the military desegregated um, almost 20 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1968. It pays women and men the same, even as today we struggle to close the gender wage gap. And I served alongside men, women, gay, straight, trans, Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, etc. And I deployed, I deployed with an immigrant from the Ivory Coast who arrived at boot camp and he could only speak French, you know. 
I had under my command a rich kid from New England who loved roughing it with the grunts and would never use his privilege to look down on somebody else. And I ate at the chow hall across from a kid who, from a broken home in South Central who joined the military to get away from gangs and now he briefs generals on military intelligence. It's diversity for unity. Um, and what brought all these people from numerous backgrounds together to work side by side was one thing, our constitution. We all share an, er an oath to uphold and defend the constitution in the United States. And we don't swear to any political party, any administration or president. The constitution is in essence the spirit of our nation. It's not our history, however dark it may be. It is the ideal of what America should aspire to be, a place where all men, asterisk, are created. <laughs> Raw men are created equal and imbued with certain unalienable rights, among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when you say support the troops or thank you for your service, understand that we're not supporting a war or administration or the wishes of dumb Mr. Burns. We're supporting an idea that this country can be a place of opportunity, freedom, and justice for all. And as an Air Force general once said about the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps does not have a race problem because they treat everyone like they're black. <laughs> all right, thanks, guys. I'm John McCombs. That was John McCombs, and this was the Paper Machete Audio Magazine for April 25th, 2020. The Machete is produced by Leah Munzee and myself, Christopher Pyatt. Our audio engineer is Jacob Serio. If you'd like to support the Machete as we dog paddle in this COVID cesspool, consider becoming a monthly donor by visiting thepapermachete.org support. Or please simply tell your people that we just became a weekly podcast and that the water is fine in 2013. Enjoy one more original from Mike Maimoni, and we'll see you next week. And as always, good night, Mrs. Steinberg, wherever you are.
that your babies sing out of tune. I don't think we're crazy, you know you're out of the moon too. These days where we live, it's anything. Baby.